HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Museum of Food and Drink, sparking curiosity about food with exhibits you can eat. For more information, visit mofad.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Food Without Borders, a show about food, politics, and all the ways that immigrants make our food system more delicious. I am your host, Sari Kamen. My guest today is Aaliyah Lee Kong. She's a chef, TV personality, mother, and author of Exotic Table, Flavors, Inspiration, and Recipes from Around the World to Your Kitchen, which was named Best of the Best by Food and Wine magazine in 2014. We'll be speaking with Aaliyah about her upbringing in a Tanzanian and Indo-Pakistani household, how her travels around the world have impacted her cooking, and how she is using food to raise awareness of the countries impacted by the Trump administration's travel ban. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Do you like Chef Lee Kong, Aaliyah? What do you prefer? <laughs> Just Aaliyah. Aaliyah. Fine. Okay, that's what I thought. Just making sure. Um, so glad you're here today. I know. I'm excited to be here. When I heard that this is the type of show that you were doing, I was really excited. I well, think it's just an amazing concept. Well, thank you. And for those of you listening, in case you didn't realize, this is actually the first episode of this new show. So couldn't be more excited to have such an amazing guest and and launch this concept, which has been in the works for not too long, but I would say at least since the election, of course, um, which was the inspiration for creating this show. That's that's actually what I was going to ask you. And yeah. I know this is you asking me questions, but I wanted to ask. No, this you. is a conversation. No, yeah. for sure. I, I wanted to say, you know, like I wanted to ask you, what was the impetus to start this show? Kind of how do you see it playing out? What, what you know, what got you fired up? And um, I mean, I think we kind of know, but where do you where do you see this going? Like, what what do you want to say? Um, yeah, that's a really great question. And I think it's a good introduction because this is the first episode. I think it's really appropriate. Um, so after the election happened, like I mentioned, I had been doing a different show called The Morning After for a couple of years on this radio station, which was a show that I loved about chefs in the restaurant industry. And um, after the election happened and then specifically after the first 
executive order happened um, that was the supposed to be enacting the first immigration ban. It, it made me really start to think about what was important to me about food and what was what like why I was pursuing food kind of as a career. And for me, it had always been a way to learn about other cultures and engage. And it was an opportunity for me to have access and learn about other people. Part of the reason why I love traveling. And I've always felt like when I understand a person's food, I understand who they are. And I started thinking about how, you know, New York City, where we live, is, is such a tolerant city compared to so many other places. And I really think it, a lot of that is because we have so many different types of food here. Absolutely. You can go out to eat at, you know, a Pakistani restaurant one night, a Persian restaurant one night, an Indian restaurant. I mean, literally the possibilities are endless. And I think we have such a higher tolerance of understanding who other people are. And I think that, you know, that sort of like anti-immigration rhetoric isn't very successful here because... We're, we're surrounded by each other. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that we, we know who's cooking our food. We eat in each other's restaurants. We have an understanding of each other's backgrounds and cultures. And, that, and to me, that, that really sort of dissipates a, f- a fear mm-hmm. that I think this kind of, you know, this sentiment is trying to um, inspire. So I felt like having a radio show was an opportunity to explore that and, you know, give people a platform to talk, give immigrants a platform to talk about how food has been a way for them to come to this country and assert their identity and teach people about who they are through their food and about who they are through their careers and food. And um, just kind of talk about how it feels because I want to give people that opportunity to say like, hey, this is, this is what it's like right now. So that was the inspiration. No, yeah. I mean, I think it's incredible. I mean, the city is built on immigrants. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think it is important to give a voice to, to the food and, and to the, the stories because that's where empathy begins mm-hmm. and kind of an understanding of people that are not like you, which is so important. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about you, unless you have more <laughs> questions right now. But speaking of let's talk about your background your you have a tanzanian and i don't know which of yeah. who, your mother or your father indo-pakistani yeah my mom is from pakistan um she was born in 49 the country was formed in 48 uh and my father is from tanzania from a city called dar es salaam which is a coastal city and um you know they met here and uh both are muslim uh i'm i'm muslim um, so it was, it's a very unique kind of background in the sense of they have a lot of similarities, but culturally are, are very different. Um, so, you know, it's, it's always been interesting to me from a food perspective because I kind of grew up with different languages and different foods and they, they overlap in some ways, but not in all ways. Um, and, and it's been a, it's, it's been an inspiration for my journey as a chef. What was the food like growing up in your household? I mean, we would we would mix. Um, my mom and my my grandmother was a fant- on on my mom's side from Pakistan was an amazing cook. I mean, when I would go to Pakistan as a child, she would cook everything from fried chicken and creme brulee to uh, you know traditional Pakistani dishes. So I think that sort of bled into my childhood. And my mom would do you know an osobuko but would also do an, a, a banging keema and rice and, and all sorts What's, of other I don't stuff. even know what keema oh, is. Oh, keema is like a ground beef. Oh, um, it's, it's ground beef in, in Pakistan, but it can be ground lamb in Indian in Pakistani food. It's, a, it's like a delicious spiced dish with like um, peppercorns and cloves and green chilies and onions and garlic and ginger and all sorts of good stuff, cumin, coriander. 
And then what is your father's background? And then my father, my father, so I find the East African food fascinating because it's this food that took, um, you know, food is formed by cultural layers. I always call it cultural layering. You know, there was a lot of influx of Indians into East Africa and Arabs and the spice trade. And so the food is sort of this mix this creole of indian and african and arab foods um using local ingredients which is kind of what happens and so i grew up with curries but they would be done with cassava and coconut and green chilies and the local ingredients that were there a lot of fresh fish um you know it's a it's a really wonderful beautiful food sometimes people call it swahili food um that combines african like there's a um this, these donuts called mandazi that I love to make that are like a fried dough um, that are like that's spiked with cardamom and that sort of thing and and you know you were saying that there's a lot of restaurants in the city and I have not found anywhere I was just thinking that I was just thinking where can I eat that food my, I don't my know house. yeah come on over okay. you can be in the neighborhood come on over yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> that really sounds delicious no, I, I actually cooked for a few people from a few magazines a couple of weeks ago and I cooked that food because I was like you know I could cook I, I've worked in all sorts of restaurants and I could do some fine dining you know tweezer type stuff or I could cook stuff that they've never eaten before mm-hmm. and see what they think about it and that's what I did and it, and it was really wonderful because it sparked conversation um, and it's just kind of a nice thing to be able to cook an undocumented food that, that people don't know about and, and have a good reception to that. I think people are I mean I don't even think it's because of the political situation necessarily but people seem to be more interested um, in that kind of like authentic experience than they used to be. I don't know like what necessarily has inspired that, but it's like we're just, we're craving to taste something that is outside of the realm of like the fine dining experience. Yeah. That It's like actually how people eat in their homes and, and really showcases like who they are culturally. Well, I think it's, it's inaccessible. I think fine dining, I mean, I, you know, God bless. I love, you know, um, there's a time, I, and a place. there's a time and a place yeah. for it for sure. I'm not trying to say anything about it, but I think that it's not so accessible for everyone. And, you know, mm. it's, it's, it, sometimes it can be art for art's sake. And when there is more meaning and I think it's also a generational thing. I, I think, you know, the sort of the millennials that are coming in crave that authenticity a lot, a lot more. And I, and I think chefs are also, paring down and, and doing what they love through food and, and that will a lot of that just comes down to comfort food that they grew up with or that it's informed by their heritage and I, I mean I love that I love that trend I think it's it's an amazing yeah it's experience. definitely a trend to to be more adventurous but in doing so you're like you know you're pursuing like you're trying to learn something about someone that you don't know right absolutely or take what you've learned and kind of really make it your own um, in, in a way that people yeah haven't seen it's like before. we really want to be I think surprised when we're we're eating more, yeah, more than ever. I think so too, and I and I think it's like, I think people cooking from their perspective and their cultural perspective. You know, David Chang. I don't think he kicked it off necessarily, but he was seminal in that. I, you know, being able to say, okay, I'm going to take Korean food and I'm going to take my training in Japan and I'm going to show you guys a different style of food that'll just wow you. And he did such an amazing job with that. And I think people really have taken a cue from that and been able to sort of tap into ways to to use their heritage or, or use foods that are not traditionally um that are now becoming part of the american dialogue yeah he's also kind of like refocused what f- i mean his food isn't all necessarily fine dining but it is a bit it's it's 
some of it's kind of elevated and mm-hmm. some of it not so much. So I think he's kind of changed perspective about like you know what people want to go out when they're when they go out to eat at a restaurant and they want to eat like really amazing food. It doesn't necessarily have to be fine dining. Exactly. Exactly. It's experiential. Yeah. Um, so you didn't necess- you didn't become a chef right away. I know you, no. you had, what was that path? Like? What, <laughs> what did you do first? I, you know, I graduated college and I, uh, I worked in the corporate world for a number of years and mainly to support myself in New York city. Um, Fair. I went and got a graduate degree and I just, uh, you know, it just wasn't something that made me happy. Um, I had been, I cooked obsessively, uh, all during that time. And I did a ton of traveling and I would just learn to cook as I was traveling. And, you know, I think it just, I I wasn't intellectually nimble enough to make the connection that I could actually make that my career. And, uh, I took a class. I I literally, I I took a cooking class. I had not taken a cooking class. I I, I would just go to restaurants, be like, "Mm, I can make this. And I'd come (laughs) home and I would probably make a poor version of it. Who knows? But, um, you know, I, I uh, took a cooking class and in that cooking class when I was there and I was learning the methods and kind of understanding you know, time, temperature, all of that stuff, it kind of connected for me that this was where I was going to really thrive um, and, and, and be able to do what I love and, and make it my career. So I, I switched paths and, um, and I enrolled in culinary school, but I, I definitely didn't, I didn't look at the brigade system and sort of working my way up in a restaurant as as my path. Um, I really wanted to learn across a breadth of cuisines, um, in large part across immigrant cuisines, and make that my own. Um, and so, you know, I would study at different types of restaurants, whether it was Ethiopian restaurants, or I would travel to cook and a bunch of different countries. Um, and I, I, I never really, when I would travel, I didn't really want to work in restaurants. I wanted to work in people's homes. And when I say work, I would want to go in people's homes and learn the, the way that they cooked and what their their culinary vocabulary was and um, kind of take from that and take ideas and take techniques and just be able to use it in a different way when I got back home. But you did end up cooking in a Michelin star restaurant. I did. <laughs> I you did. were the chef. Yeah. I, um, you know, I, I cooked at uh, an Indian restaurant called Davy, um, and the chef de cuisine there left and moved to Janoon, which is the restaurant where I was a chef. And um, he was a very sort of traditional, he was my mentor, he was a very traditional Indian chef and kind of knew a lot of the old school. But he asked me to come on because he wanted to create a tasting menu, you know, bring in local ingredients, think about a different way of um, plating and serving and, and ways to sort of um, modify, you know, still keep the flavors true, but modify the presentation of the food. And so I kind of came in and, and worked with him and it was just, it was fantastic. It was really fun. And, um, you know, I think, I think the restaurant, the restaurants there today, I'm, you know, I'm not associated with it, but it's, it's thriving. And they, I think they opened one in Dubai or somewhere and it's, it's, it was a really fun time. It must have been really challenging, though, like having, you know, you kind of said you you went to culinary school, but so much of your education was was traveling and being in people's homes and then all of a sudden transitioning to like this very high end kitchen. Well, I was kind of I worked in restaurants, too. So, I, you know, I, I staged at the Perses and the Jean Georges and I worked in a bunch of different restaurants as well. And then in my times in between, I would travel or I would take time off to do that, too. Um you know, kind of just to still have work and, uh, in the, in the restaurant world. And, um, so it was, it was kind of, there was some overlap between all of those times. Mm-hmm. And then why did you end up leaving? 
I left ultimately, you know, my interest in food is broader than a single cuisine. Um, also at that time, um, it was very close to when I had, I had my first child my only child at, the, at this point that I know of. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I also, my, my cookbook launched at the same time and it was sort of a time where I was on my maternity leave and, you know, we go through these periods, whether it was, you know, for me having a child and, and now, you know, this Trump administration where you start to really revisit and, and think about your priorities and, and get a little more focused on them. Um, uh, and I, I kind of realized that that wasn't where I wanted to be long term, and I really wanted to think about how I could branch out beyond that and find different ways to communicate these stories around immigrant food as well. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about how your traveling has impacted um, you know, the way you see food and kind of what you've sort of created to be, I know it's, it's all over the place. It's very eclectic and global, but sort of like what your, your style and what your, your brand of cooking is at this point. And you visited 30 countries in the last 10 years. Yeah. I think a little, probably a little more at this point. Um, you know, I, I think what I've learned is that there is nothing traditional. There's nothing traditional. Everything is an amalgamation of cultures, of influences, of, you know, influxes of people, um, war. I mean, there's so many things that influence a cuisine. Um, and that's happening in the United States. And I've, I've thought that for a long time, but you see it every day more and more. I always, you know, call this example of when, you know, I was a little girl, my mom and I would be making hummus, you know, in the food processor on a weekend together. And, you know, we'd have to go to the specialty store to get the tahini and we'd come home and we'd, we'd make our hummus. And now, you know, you walk into the corner bodega or you go to any grocery store in the country, likely, and you can find hummus. And that sort of... 30 kinds. I mean, 30 <laughs> kinds. Yeah, exactly. I mean, how does, how do these foods sort of transition into pop, popular culture? Um, so I think we're, we're just a newer country. You know, you go to Turkey or Peru and, and or per, let's take Peru, for example. You know, you have the Native Americans that were there. You have Spanish conquistadors. They had Moorish wives. Uh, there were Chinese and Japanese immigrants that came in as workers. So that food is layered. And I'm probably I'm missing some, but like every all those those layers come into the food and you see it in the chifas or, you know, in the uh, in the Peruvian roast chicken or in the desserts that have. Um, caraway and cardamom in them you know you see all of those layers in that food we can sort of step back and see the impact of of that here we're still in the midst of it very much because we are such a new country so um you know i think that that's how i that's how i think about food i think of myself as sort of a microcosm of that and i sort of take everything that i learn and, and every influence that i come across and it finds its way into my food but how do these effects of globalization, like, how does that make you feel like that you can go into a bodega or like any store and see 30 kinds of hummus? Is there something kind of lost in that? No. Well, not for hummus. <laughs> <laughs> and no, I think that, you know, part of my inspiration, um, as I'm just going to say, I would say a cook, you know, part of my inspiration as a cook is that going back to that story about those donuts, I was hell bent at six years old to learn how to make those donuts because I could not eat them anywhere else. Mm. And what I like is actually seeing foods become part of something bigger because otherwise they get lost. They absolutely get lost. And, and I worry about foods that we'll never see again. They were just sort of, you know, if no one passes them down, if no one learns those recipes, if this generation doesn't care about it, then, you know, that, that 
food and, and that cuisine is just going to die off somewhere. Yeah. Um, you have, you said something on your site. I just want to read this quote. The idea that cultures can blend with one another to create amazing food is one that is instinctive to me. Yeah. I'd love to hear you talk about that because I don't think that it's instinctive for most people that doesn't necessarily feel intuitive. Well, I think coming from a mixed cultural heritage, Mm -hmm. um, that's how I'd put it. And, now in a family myself where I have a mixed race and cultural child, uh, you know, the food that I cook is, <laughs> you know, I might serve West Indian oxtail with a paratha, an Indian paratha, like it might just happen. Um, it is, it, it is instinctual for me because that's how I was raised. I was raised with, again, these foods blending. I never really knew that this, oh, this was specifically Easter. I mean, I knew certain dishes, right? But a lot of times my mom would just be making food and I didn't necessarily identify it as specifically Pakistani or specifically Tanzanian. But in me, you know, it's sort of become that way. It's just all good food. Yeah, it's good food, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, you said something else as we kind of transition a little bit. In your cookbook, in the introduction, you, which you wrote in 2014, obviously yeah. a, a a different time. Yes. Things have changed. Um, America has become one of the most open cultures attempting to embrace diversity. Immigrants come from all over the world. Yeah, Barack had me convinced. Yeah. <laughs> I was convinced at that time. So, um, you know, in the context of your of your parents, of your heritage, of your husband, of your child, how does it feel? How does it feel now? Um, disillusioned. Um, scary. Um, that's not to say that it isn't, uh, America's still an amazing country. There are still amazing people here. I think that, um, the floodgates that have been opened up by this administration and, and the political agenda, um, that have allowed people to speak their mind on the sub, on xenophobic, um, tendencies and, and, and the way people really feel about immigrants in this country or um, black people in this country or, or whatever has, has Muslim. been said. Muslims, obviously Muslims yeah. in this country. Um, it's just, it's kind of, it's, I mean, it's super disheartening, but it's also scary. I mean, I, I remember during the whole, the whole camp, uh, political campaign thinking, there's just no way mm-hmm. that people really think that this is okay, that this racism is okay, that this, that this thinking that Trump has is okay. I, I, and, and my, I remember my dad, you know, my parents are in Florida and, and he's like, you are clueless. You live in New York city. You're so clueless. You have no idea what people in this country think. I don't want to, I want to believe there's somewhere in between those two. That seems fair. Um, how does it feel as a parent having a, a mixed race child. I don't know if you raise your daughter Muslim or no. Just, yeah. I mean, well, she's she's kind of both. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we kind of did both. Um, you know, I think uh, uh, it's 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 ridiculously scary. Um, all I can focus on is empowering her as much as I can um, to speak her mind. We do affirmations every night. She's supposed to speak her mind. Um, and how old is she? She's almost four. So how just kind of like cognizant, like how much have you filled her in or how much is she able to absorb? Oh, she has no idea. Okay. She lives in a, it's better that way. <laughs> yeah. She, she has no idea. And I think given our friend base, which is super multicultural, um, and she goes to a school where her class is actually 51% diverse across 
socioeconomic, LGBT, race, culture. It's it's a very... I think that she definitely isn't even more of a bubble than other people for now. And I'm okay with that. Lucky her. <laughs> At four. Yeah. Um, I'm okay with that. I think that she's... I want, you know, as much as I can raise her to not be, not, not be aware. She's always going to be aware of those issues, but to not feel like they, um, you know, I don't even know what the right way is to say this, but I don't want her to be hindered by any thoughts about what other people think about her race. So I I just want to empower her. And that's all I can really think of at this point. Yeah. And I can only pray that in three years, like something's got to change. And, and at that point she'll be more cognizant and we'll be on a different path. Mm hmm. How about how it's affected you as a chef? Because, I mean, immigrant cuisine has always been your platform and using food to learn about people and other cultures. I mean, that's always been your thing, but now it's just so much more potent. Yeah. I think, um, you know, for me, um, at the beginning of the year, I really felt like, just like you, after that travel ban and after inauguration, I, I felt like something has to change. My focus has to change. You know, I've done... Um, my work has to be more specifically focused um, and I have to be more politically active with what I'm doing um, and, and make an impact. You know, I kind of felt like before it was almost like through the food and just through what I'm doing, naturally people that will, people would be open and people would understand my agenda, um, but kind of almost in a sideway, not head on. And now I want to be more head on with what I'm doing because um we need to have meaning in what we do. Yeah. Um, and it's just become clearer that if you have a way to resist um, and you can use a platform to do it, you should be doing it. Yeah. So what are some of the ways you've been doing it? Well, I've started, I, you know, the beginning of the year after the travel ban, I, I started to cook what I was calling banned food. Um, and I was cooking from the seven countries, uh, Muslim countries. And then I've also been exploring um, Muslim food through a cultural lens. I was think, I've been thinking a lot about the fact that um, my East African heritage, you know, is it's that's Muslim food. Um, you know, you look at Indonesia, you look at China, you look at uh, Nigeria, you look at all of these different countries that have Muslim food. I think that um, sort of our lens of what it is to be Muslim is very specific. Um, is there like a connecting thread? I mean, they're all different. All the countries are Muslim, but they're all very different. I think in their cuisines, right? So I was I've been studying and trying to yeah. trying to explore and thinking about doing a pop up series around like a cultural exploration of Muslim food across different countries, um, as a way to sort of open people's minds about what it means to be Muslim and and who really is when you're looking around. You just don't know. You know, you don't know if someone's Muslim. Yeah, or not. I wouldn't look at you and, and be, I mean, you're not wearing a hijab. You know? yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's kind of this speaking to this idea that it is something broader. Um, it encompasses a lot of people and, and people's hate affects a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how do we sort of make people aware of, um, of what it means? I mean, you know, far be it from me to sit there and, and I, I don't think for me talking about the religion itself and the, and peace and all of the things that it proclaims is kind of where I want to be. But I do think through food like you, through food and through stories around food, I think that a lot can be gleaned and a lot of people can understand people's lives that way. 
Um, can you talk a little bit more specifically about like who you've been sharing the food with or if there's been any impact at this point? Yeah, I mean, I, I do a lot on social media and I've been sharing and I've been hosting small dinners mm-hmm. um, and I'm thinking about moving into a larger pop-up series. Um, and I'm also working right now um, on a, an app and it's a, a children's app that's focused on culture and food. And that will be out in the fall. So I'm probably going to be doing more during that time as well. I really love that idea. Yeah. yeah. I, I could talk to adults, but I think kids, you got to start young. <laughs> That's so true. Um, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back and we'll talk more. Great. Hi, I'm Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. We all know and love Chinese takeout dishes like General Tso's chicken and egg rolls. But here's the thing. Even though we call it Chinese food, it's not like the food you'd find in China. What's the story behind this cuisine? And how did it become so popular that you can find a Chinese-American restaurant in nearly every town in the country? The answers may surprise you. Visit the Museum of Food and Drink in Brooklyn and see our newest exhibition, Chow, Making the Chinese-American Restaurant. Chow engages visitors with compelling accounts of how Chinese immigrants overcame racism and created Chinese-American cuisine. Discover the science behind the flavors of your favorite takeout dishes, feast on rotating tastings developed by the country's most talented Chinese-American chefs, and try your hand at writing your own fortune, which will be baked into actual cookies by a 1,500-pound fortune cookie machine. What better way to learn, connect, and eat? You can visit Chow at the Museum of Food and Drink on Fridays through Sundays from noon to 6. Tickets and more information can be found at mofad.org. Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. Welcome back. You're listening to Food Without Borders on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sari Kamen, and I'm here in studio with Chef Aliyah Lee Kong. Hello. Welcome back. Hello. Um, So we've been talking about your banned food series, which highlights all the different countries that were affected by Trump's executive order and how you've been using food to educate people about Muslims and people from from all over the world that there may be some misconceptions about at this point other than your banned food series do you have any sort of other ideas percolating like now that you have this i don't know that you feel very energized that you have this this way to resist through food you have this platform yeah i mean i've been thinking a lot about um you know our, our plan was to potentially after the dinner series create something bigger and, and maybe put together a conference that's sort of this intersection, um, not unlike what you're talking about here, where food and politics can come together. And we're still toward, sort of being mindful and working through the details of something like that and having panels and having discussions around it. I think a lot of conversations happen around food. And that's sort of the cornerstone of my, my thought process with using food as a, as a vehicle and kind of how can we spark those conversations or how can we have people in the room having those conversations where people will be really listening and open to, to, to learning a little bit more. I actually think your cookbook would be a really good place to start. I mean, you wrote it a few years ago, so it didn't come necessarily as a a reaction to today's political climate, but 
its flavors, inspirations, and recipes from around the world. Can yeah. you, yeah, talk a little bit about like where where are the different flavors coming from? What? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, you know, this this cookbook came from my heritage, my husband's immigrant heritage as well, um, and his family, to be clear, is from Trinidad. But he has a Hong Kong Chinese grandfather, and that's why my last name is Lee Kong. Oh, okay. I was um, wondering. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, also all of the flavors I've sort of grown up around and traveling to learn. And, um, and for me, it was, you know, how do we make, how do we take these flavors and how do we um, layer the things that I, you know, how can I la- layer what I'm learning outside and, and around the world and make it my own in my home? Um, and which is sort of the basis of how immigrant food happens. You know, um, my mom has changed so many recipes, um, to use things that are here, you know, the different chilies, the different, there's so much. So, you know, that's kind of what happens in any country and that's what's happening here. And, um, yeah, and that's how I, I kind of work through the, the cookbook. And I, I wanted to, uh, create a breadth of recipes that were a little easier for people at home, not too chefed up. Um, you know, to, to make and to explore these cuisines. Um, yeah. Do you think you would ever work in a restaurant again? I mean, I can see you like opening a restaurant that kind of hones in on, on your heritage and your background and just kind of a celebration of all your different travels. You know, I think that I would love, I, I was talking to a restaurateur yesterday actually, um, and he, he said, well, why wouldn't you ever? Yeah. <laughs> I think that I'd love to, to create a prepared foods place and, and do foods that people could actually take home. Yeah. Um, you know, whether that's, and I love baking too. So whether that's baking and breads and I've been thinking about cooking a, um, a global breads class cause I love baking different breads. Um, you know, or, or just, you know, the, the different, you know, a Trini macaroni pie or a Peruvian roast chicken or different things. And how do we sort of take that, you know, how can I make that and, and make it beautiful and have someone take it home and then have it in their house? I think when someone has that food in their house, it's just a different, that is that hummus in every store. That is, that's basically that. Yeah. It's such a great, it is such a great time, you know, for so many different reasons, like because people are so um, hungry to to feel engaged and yeah. to feel like you know you feel very hopeless and powerless in in a lot of different instances, especially after watching the news or reading the news. But I think you know cooking is one of those ways that we can feel like we're doing something really proactive and we're we're engaging and we're learning and you know just sitting around a table and like having community. Yeah, having um, community, having conversation. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, more of that. Tell us where we can follow you or you can stay, stay up to date with everything that you're working oh, on. Oh yeah. Um, it's all kind of my name. So my website, alialikong.com, yeah. you know, I'm on Instagram at alialikong, Twitter, Facebook, same, um, would love to hear from you. So yeah. Yeah. Would love to hear about any <laughs> classes that you're doing in the future. Yeah, and, for sure. Yeah. Well, Aliyah, thank you so much for thank coming on you, and being sir. my inaugural awesome. guest. On I know. Food Congratulations. Borders. Well, I couldn't have asked for a, you know, a more articulate and interesting guest to have on the show. Oh, so I really appreciate you. it. Thank you out there for listening. Stick with us. We're going to be every Wednesday, 5 p.m. EST on Heritage Radio, or you can download the show. You can listen to it on Heritage Radio or download it on iTunes and Stitcher. We'll see you next week back here at Roberta's.
listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.